through nine. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? How do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place... I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Um, so just to kind of set the scene for what God is trying to encourage them with, you notice when he said in verse 3 that there were people present who may have actually seen Solomon's temple in its glory before it was destroyed. Uh, and we've recently gone over Solomon's kingdom uh, in our Bible class. If you remember, Solomon basically had like an unlimited budget. And not only did he have an unlimited budget of like gold and silver and bronze and you know, the cedars of Lebanon, but there were actually people who were especially gifted to accomplish that task in his day. And we don't necessarily have any implication of something similar with this work. Um, so there are people from like Tyre, for instance, who are equipped to do special things with bronze, uh, the wood and the gold. There were just very specially crafted things for that temple. And these, it just seems, were very ordinary people who obviously were doing an extraordinary work and they were extraordinarily equipped in ways by God. But you just put into your mind that the foundation that had been built, just by looking at it, it probably would have been discouraging. Especially if you had been there before, you'd seen the gold, the lavishness, the skill of all the craftsmanship involved in every, every single nook and cranny of what the Temple of Solomon was. And you see this very meager-looking foundation in comparison. And in verse 3, God just blatantly says, does it not look like nothing in comparison? So not only does it seem less glorious, God says himself that in their eyes it looks like nothing in comparison. And I think this is just a reality of serving God. Is When we serve God, there are things that God has done in the past, there's things that have been created in the past that look so glorious and perfect that when we enter into the reality of our work right now, it can seem like it's just very meager, it's not as powerful, it's not as impactful, and it's not as perfect as it was in the past. Think about something like the book of Acts. Like, I can read about all the people being converted in the book of Acts. I can read about the fellowship Christians had together in the book of Acts. I can read about this, like, very pure, genuine zeal that they had to serve God elders being appointed like what seems like very quickly in these churches and then you read the book of acts and if, if that's your expectation like it should always look exactly like this then as soon as you begin to actually work with your brethren and try to inspire that kind of zeal it can potentially be very discouraging because what you end up seeing and what you end up reading in the book of acts it can look like nothing in comparison right so I think God acknowledges their reality by making sure that they're not being clouded in their perspective 
in not being able to comprehend the hope that he's promising with the work. Um, so the reality was these were discouraging circumstances, but I think with this first section, prudence, and especially godly prudence, creates motivation to act. Godly prudence creates motivation to act. Um, so you notice how God motivated them specifically. So like verse 5, God assures them that this ancient promise that was made in the exodus of God's presence among them was still valid. That promise had not worn out. Verse 6, he mentions that he's going to shake the kingdoms of the earth and all the wealth of the nations is going to fill the house of the Lord with glory. And in verse, uh, verse 9, he promises them that this work is going to lead to peace. So all of these things were things that God had either done in the past or things that God was going to do in the future, right? And really their obedience, I think, had opened their heart to be able to actually have the care to respond to these promises and the assurance that they were real. Um, remember Hebrews 11, verse 1? Hebrews 11 is that like faith hall of fame, and it mentions that without faith is impossible to please God. And I think like there's, there's a factual sense where like obviously like factually we can't please God without faith. That's just what God has chosen uh, to account for righteousness. But in Hebrews 11.1, 1, it mentions that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Really serving God actually will not happen unless I have real assurance that God is actually going to fulfill his promises and do it. And they had put themselves in the situation where they could be motivated by these promises of what God would do in the future. Um, so godly prudence motivates action. Um, one last quick point on this. Um, in verse 9, in this place I will give peace. They had already experienced a lot of conflict around building the temple. They would actually experience more. Uh, Nehemiah, uh, sometime later, actually, beyond the lifetime of Haggai or Zerubbabel or any of these people, um, Nehemiah would come here and you would actually experience even more conflict. Uh, you think about in Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 11, uh, God just is forthright with the Jews um, that in the intertestamental period between Malachi and the life of Jesus, there were going to be very, very turbulent circumstances in Jerusalem because of the conflicts of nations all around them. But I think the idea is that everything that they were doing for the temple, and as long as they were focused on that work, it was a work that would not only bring peace later, but bring them peace presently. It was a work of peace. And I think that's like chapter one, we talked about priorities and how like their lives like really didn't have peace so long as they were letting the temple lie dormant without being rebuilt. And, you know, they could think that they would have a hard time connecting the idea that this difficulty they were having in every other part of their life was actually related to the temple and not building the temple. Um, but the answer was actually putting God's things first and putting the kingdom um, back in its position of being first. So he motivates them with prudence and faith, promising them work that he would do through their efforts, even though in the present, by appearance, it does not look like it's going to accomplish any of these things. Um, so let's look at the next section in verse 10 through 19. This is now a few months later, verse 10. In the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with his fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, no. 
Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priests answered, It will become unclean. Then Haggai said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. But but now, do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to a grain heap of twenty measures, there would only be ten, when one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, and there would only be twenty, I smote and I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the month of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded. Consider, is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not borne fruit yet. From this day on, I will bless you. Uh, so think first about this scene that you know God is encouraging Haggai to, uh, to illustrate for the people. Um, he goes to a priest in Leviticus 10. You know, a priest's job was to understand like the clean from the unclean and also to teach the people. So he has like this very real conversation about this. And the idea is if like if a priest was carrying holy meat that would have been used for like the sacrifices, that was being like wrapped in his garment. And if he like bumped into somebody or some other meat or anything, the question is, well, will that person or meat or whatever be all of a sudden made holy just because it touched the holy meat? And obviously like it can't. But then on contrast, if a person is unclean because of touching a corpse, if they bump into someone or touch meat, well, what happens? It becomes unclean. I think an easy way to think about this If I'm, like, sick, and if you're healthy, and you cough on me, being healthy, will that make me healthy all of a sudden because your healthiness was in your breath? It won't. Uh, But if I'm healthy, and you're sick and contagious, and you cough in my face, will I become sick? Probably. I mean, it's not like a certainty, but I'll probably get sick from breathing your sick air, right? So the idea is like the uncleanness of the people actually had more power to spread, in a sense, almost like more influence to spread just naturally, almost like just a law of physics kind of thing, that it could spread more rapidly. It had more power to, you know, infect people. And God, again, is very plain with them that that's for this 15-year period where the altar was built, the, the foundation was at least laid, but then the work was not being done beyond that. God is telling the people that it's just like that illustration where even if they're bringing their sacrifices to the altar, bringing animals and worshiping, the act of worshiping, like a checklist, did not all of a sudden like make the people holy, right? And I think that could have been a way that they could have like in the previous chapter justified delaying continuing to build the temple because if the altar is there, then you can worship. And the priests, they had the instruments of David, so like, you know, worship in a very formal sense may have actually still been happening like normal in that 15-year period. So you're able to at least like checklist your worship. You're able to actually like engage in what would feel fulfilling in terms of approaching God. But from God's perspective, that's not how it looked in his eyes. That that whole time when he mentioned in chapter 1, he was uh, making it so that like their garments couldn't even warm them, their income was insufficient, that what they would plant wouldn't bear the fruit that they would need to be satisfied. So that, that whole time, their, their works and everything they would do was defiled in God's eyes. And another thing, too, is obedience to God and repentance 
has more power than acts of worship in an unrepentant life, right? So, like, they were continuing to just not build the, the temple, which was, like, the primary responsibility they had in this time frame, and yet they were still coming to worship. And their worship was not cleansing them, right? The ritual of worship was not cleansing them. And I think God is making the point here that their repentant obedience and their humbling themselves, that God was cleansing and accepting them through the genuineness of their repentant hearts. And I think it emphasizes that they had really set their heart very genuinely toward the Lord. Another evidence of this in verse 19, this is kind of easy to overlook, but notice in verse 19, had anything actually borne fruit yet? So they're working for three months. It's actually the time of the year for the harvest because the Jewish year would have started at a different place than our year. The Jewish year started in March, April-ish period. Um, So this would have been the ninth month and nothing was actually bearing fruit in this three-month period. So think about that. They were working on the temple. They weren't stopping. And they hadn't actually reaped any sense of like productive benefit for themselves yet from the work and yet they weren't stopping. Think about how that would test their hearts. Like, why are they building the temple? Are they doing it just because they want to get something out of it? Or are they doing it out of a genuine love and admiration for God? Are they doing it out of true repentance over what they had done in the past to make things right now for the future? Um, So it shows that they were serving God in a genuine way. One, One last thing on this before we look at the last section Um, The consequences of their disobedience were still lingering for these few months. And again, it didn't stop their work. Um, So think about like somebody who smokes regularly, um, how that damages their lungs. And like sometimes you'll see like pictures and commercials that show like damaged lungs from regular cigarette smoking. Um, Apparently it can take like 15 years for your lungs to actually completely heal from the damage that uh, regular cigarette smoking causes. So is it not worth quitting smoking just because the consequences linger for a while and it takes a while for it to fully heal? Like, does that invalidate the benefit of stopping that habit, right? And I think that's, again, like how God was refining their hearts and refines our hearts, is when the consequences of sin sin linger in our lives, does that invalidate the benefit of genuinely serving God, even when it means I have to make great sacrifices. And like we talked about this morning, even when I have to radically recalibrate my priorities to do it, is it still worth it, even when consequences of my sin still linger and persist? For them it was. And you see in verse 19, God was not just going to fail to fulfill his promise and restore the land around them. Um, In Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, Uh, Back in the times of Moses, God had even said if they were obedient, he would bless them. If they were disobedient, he would curse them. And so God simply being faithful to those promises on both ends. They were disobedient, so he was cursing their land. That's what he said he would do. Now they were obedient, and God was going to, from this day on, bless them. Um, Let's look at the last section in verse 20 20 through 23. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. This is again like the same, same day, same month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the powers of the kingdoms of the nations. 
and I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So this is kind of a strange promise, but I think this is actually one of the most important promises, if not by far the most important promise that God makes in the entire context of this book and time frame. Um, Just to paint a picture of why this would have been extremely motivating for the people to hear, keep your your finger here, but turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is where God was promising David that he would build him a house and that there would be a king who would come from the lineage of David who would reign reign over the house of Israel forever. Uh, I'm going to read 12 through 16 of this chapter and just make a couple observations on this. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, verses uh, 12 through 16. 12 through 16. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, when I removed from whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. That was like one of the most primary important promises outside of things said to Abraham back in the book of Genesis, related to the things that God would ultimately do to bless the world through the seed of Abraham and Israel. Um, notice, in verse, notice in verse 12, he will raise up the descendant of David, singular, who will come forth from him. Verse 13, there would be a house built and he would sit on the throne of the kingdom forever. So this idea, if you really press the idea of, of one king sitting on a throne forever, ultimately that can only be God if you really think about the nature of that promise. But if you look at Jeremiah chapter 22, Jeremiah 22 Um, I think there's something about their circumstances that would have made this much more of an amazing promise than just what they knew God had said to David originally. Um, Jeremiah 22, and Jeremiah is living in the time frame when Jerusalem is about to be destroyed by Babylon. Um, And in Jeremiah chapter 22, looking specifically at verse 30, uh, verse 30, Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless. And he's talking to, in verse 28, Coniah, also Jeconiah, who was one of the long uh, descendants of David. Um, Write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper, sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Um, So this promise can be taken two ways. One There's one way to see this, that none of the physical descendants of David after this man, none of the physical descendants ever really sat on the throne of David as a king like these kings did. 
Even in the times of Jesus, you had Herod the king, but Herod was not a descendant of David. and He was not a king like David either over Israel. He was more a king appointed by Rome. Um, so that's one way to look at it. Another way is he may have been expressing that uh, none of the immediate children of Jeconiah would sit on the throne because the uh, kingdom of Jerusalem and Israel was about to be completely obliterated by Babylon. And you look at it in verse 5 of the next chapter, I think that kind of lends itself um, to that conclusion in verse 5 of chapter 23. Verse 5 of chapter 23. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in, in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. So you kind of have this promise that on the one hand, Jeconiah's descendants would not sit on the throne of David or prosper anymore. But then you have this other promise on the other hand, where there would be a descendant of David who would be raised up and still would reign as king and act wisely to do justice and righteousness in the land. And if you, I know it's jumping around a little bit, but look at chapter 22 again. Verse 24, and I think this is what really relates to the language of Haggai, so we can begin putting this together. You've got the promise to David that God would raise up a descendant to sit on his throne forever. You have the time of Jeconiah when Babylon was going to destroy the city, and it looks like those promises are ending, but God is giving the assurance that he would still accomplish his purpose. In 22 verse 24, it says, As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off, and I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life, yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. So he talks about Jeconiah, almost like this signet ring. And if you don't know, a signet ring would have been like a ring that would have been used to uh, put into melted wax, and then it would be like a, a seal that you would put on documents or letters that would indicate that it's from the authority of the king. Um, so God is promising that he's going to pull Jeconiah off of his hand and throw him away. But then in Haggai chapter 2, Zerubbabel is being spoken of as a signet ring that is being put on God's hand. So it's almost like this promise that looks like it's been thrown away. The zeal of these people, their genuineness and their repentance their love for God that has been expressed and they're rebuilding the temple and, and, and constructing the building. It's like God is picking the promise back up and putting it back on his hand to faithfully, uh, to faithfully do it. Um, I think one important point from that, Haggai is really important as a prophet because it demonstrates amazing ways that God keeps his promises. To these people, it would have in a very real way maybe looked like the promise to David really was never going to be fulfilled again. Uh, Zerubbabel ultimately was a governor and was going to stay a governor and not a king. And after him, people who would come from Zerubbabel uh, would either be governors or not be governors at all from that day forward. So really, ultimately, this promise is actually not fully fulfilled until the time of Jesus. Um, and when Jesus would ascend to heaven to sit on the throne of God uh, forever. But God keeps his promises. And I think this would motivate the people to realize that the things that God had said in the past, 
the joy that they were seeking and the way that they wanted God to bless them in accordance with his promises in the past as it was written even in the law of Moses, that God would be faithful to those things in his time and in his way. And they could count on those promises. Things that seemed like they would have been lost or being restored. And you think about even God saying the, the people and their, their works were all unclean, but just by their obedience to God at the words of the prophet, God was willing to accept them and cleanse them and bless them. So just when it looks hopeless and when it looks like things in the past make it seem like everything is working against any kind of faith that you could have that God would accept you and bless you, God is giving the assurance that he will absolutely fulfill his promises presently, just as he's promised he would in the past. I think that's important with the beginning of the chapter. Um, They were undertaking a work that by appearance did not look like it was going to have the impact of Solomon's temple. But the appearance was not the reality. And I think the same thing here with the work here at Garden City. Um, We're generally um, here um, busy, and there's just a lot going on in our lives. And I think sometimes the little that we're able to do um, can seem like it definitely cannot have the kind of impact that uh, maybe you wish it would. Or, you know, again, you read scripture and you read about these great things going on and it just seems like what you're doing is so small. And I think it's important to have the assurance of knowing that God works through these little things that always will seem discouraging because it just doesn't seem like it could possibly amount to anything like what we've seen in God's word. And yet it's those very things that God demonstrates his power through and that contribute to the faithfulness of his plan. Um, One last point um, with Haggai. Uh, Turn to Matthew chapter 28. This deals with um, God's promise that he was going to shake the nation's Um, and horse and rider would all fall. I think this is ultimately fulfilled um, in Jesus as well. Uh, Matthew 28, 18, because the gospel is not just a message of the forgiveness of our sins. That's a part of the message. It's within it. But ultimately, the message of the gospel is that Jesus is reigning as king. And the whole message revolves around his kingship. Even at the beginning of the gospel, John the Baptist would proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus would pick up where John had left off, word for word he would reiterate that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as the gospel ends in Matthew uh, chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority in heaven and on earth. Um, Why is that important? So the Adamis, uh, Anthony and Peggy and Michael Abbott, were talking to me about some really difficult things that they're facing after the assembly this morning, for instance. And they're dealing with, like, you know, situations where there are legal threats um, happening that are unwarranted. Um, You know, and, and the idea is whenever we're being intimidated to pull back or withdraw, you know, Satan can use a lot of things that look powerful or seem intimidating. But if we really understand what God has done, the position that Jesus is in, we can have the confidence that no power, no authority can invalidate God's promises or his faithfulness. And then the task becomes just submitting and serving him. And that's it. That if we just submit to God and serve him, just like the people of Jerusalem in the time of Haggai, 
were lots of things they could have been worried about all around them, but their focus just needed to be set, build the temple. It would be another four years before they would actually complete it, and they just had to focus, build the temple. Amidst all the other things going on, the God of heaven and earth is with you. The Persian government, all these other things that are, that are striving to intimidate them and discourage them, do not have the authority that God possesses. Another thing is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Um, 2 Thessalonians 1, um, verses 5 through 10. And the reason we're going to this passage is, you know, again in Haggai, God promising that all the nations were going to be shaken, all the horses and the riders were going to be set against one another. And in that place, in Jerusalem specifically, God would bring glory and peace. Um, You know, we talked about how serving God oftentimes can seem like it's adding stress, adding anxiety into our lives because of, like, new conflicts that serving God brings. But when we look at God and his work in faith, it it, uh, increases our sense of assurance that the conflicts we face in faith are leading us to the promise of God's glory, and that God will take care of the conflicts that we face as we face them. Uh, Verse 5 of... uh, or 2 Thessalonians um, chapter 1. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for a testimony to you was believed. So with all these things, just like Paul was striving to give them comfort and encouragement here by reminding them of the authority of Jesus, the promise of his coming, the promise of his judgment, Hebrews 3.13 to the Hebrews who are also suffering ongoing conflict that was wearying them and discouraging them, uh, the Hebrew writer told them that they needed to encourage each other day after day so long as it is called today so that none of their hearts will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The reality is, just like in Haggai, we are facing a work that on the surface seems very unassuming, unimportant, doesn't seem like it's having the impact of things that we may read in Scripture, doesn't seem like it's leading to the kind of glory we read in, in you know, the book of Acts again with what the church has become seemingly so quickly with appointing elders very quickly. So I think it can be easy just by appearance to get discouraged. And I think, again, we have to have the prudence to be motivated by God's promises as he's dwelling with us in an even greater way than he was with them. But we also have to realize that because of those things and because of the conflicts we face in this work, it becomes even more important to encourage each other and to be deliberate about that. So God deliberately through Haggai showered encouragement upon them. And like Jason said, you know, on Sunday afternoons, oftentimes that's like our core group, you know, that comes. So I think like, especially when you're trying to serve God, there's just a special need for encouragement to be given. And so we just have to be careful to not forget about the fact that we do need deliberate encouragement. I know I need it. And I'm certain that you find yourself needing it as well. So that's where we'll stop for.
Haggai. Um, Lord willing, we'll be starting Hebrews as our next uh, Sunday afternoon um, letter to read through and study through if you want to prepare for that. Um, But if you're here and um, you've been convicted of sin in your life that you feel you need to bring forward before the church to confess, or if you're convicted that um, you'd like to express your need for more encouragement or prayers on anything, um, those are the kinds of things that the assembly in many ways is for, is so that we can be aware of needs, so that we can come together in unity to meet those needs. And even if it's just encouragement, as simple as that is, that we can encourage one another daily and be the blessing that God wants us to be for one another. If there's anything that we can do for you, come and bring it forward while we stand and sing invitation song.